Sound and Memory Approaching the Holocaust Through Music Hello and welcome to the podcast. My name is Ian Biddle. This series of podcasts will cover a range of topics relating to sound, music and the Holocaust. Throughout the podcast series, we'll be asking some questions about how music was made by victims of the Holocaust, why they continue to make music under such appalling conditions, and why a refusal to give up the status of cultural beings was so pronounced among the victims. The podcast is designed so you can listen along whilst doing other things. Episode 1 In today's podcast we ask, what does the Holocaust teach us about music? In the next few minutes, I will answer this question in three different ways. First, I will answer it negatively, focusing on how the Holocaust teaches us what music is not. Second, I will answer this positively, focusing on how the Holocaust brings new insight into the meanings of music and its interrelationships with power. And finally, I will problematize the off-sighted notion that music served for the victims of the Holocaust as a kind of spiritual resistance. First of all then, focusing our answer on the so-called negative insights the Holocaust offers, we can say that the Holocaust unsettles what most of us believe music to be for. We tend, at least in Europe and North America, to think of music as an unconditionally good thing. It is a positive force in the world, it brings people together and helps cement identities and communities. During the Holocaust, however, some of these functions of music were stretched to their limits. Whilst music served as a useful escape mechanism for many, and also helped many musicians to survive, it also offered a means through which victims of the Holocaust could be humiliated and brutalised. Music is not immune, we learn, to the cruelty of humankind to itself. And once we learn this, I would argue, we become better able to understand that music is not innocent. Perpetrators of the atrocities against Holocaust victims often used music as a way of singling somebody out for cruel marginalisation. This could happen through so-called forced music making, for example, in which victims were made to sing, dance or play music for the amusement of their captors. The second approach to today's question then, focusing, as I say, on what new insights we learn about music during the Holocaust, leads us to think about music as part of the world. What can we say about music used to humiliate and denigrate? What kind of music did survivors hold on to? What kinds of music have community-specific meanings for Jewish victims of the Holocaust, for example? What we come to learn, as we shall see, is that the Holocaust teaches us to value music more deeply. Many surviving the atrocities speak intensely of their investment in music as a way of staying alive. Many even think of this as a kind of spiritual resistance. And it is this final idea that I want to turn to now. In her wonderfully rich and detailed book, Music in the Holocaust from 2006, the scholar and historian Shirley Gilbert explains why she started to mistrust this idea of spiritual resistance. She says the following in her introduction, quote, People who ask me about my work would indeed often make comments about its macabre nature, 
or the incongruity of music in such a setting. It took me some time to realise, however, that this understanding was based on tacit assumptions about the nature of music and the kinds of roles it should play. The idea that music comforts and uplifts people, or acts as a vehicle for asserting humanity and dignity. Deeper involvement with my subject led me radically to reassess these assumptions. In particular, why was it assumed that music was inviolable by social forces, or that it was immune to the processes of politicisation and corruption that infiltrated so many aspects of life at that time? Especially in the ghettos and camps, where the perverted moral codes and deeds of the regime had their most concentrated expression, nothing could escape contamination. End quote. And so we see, as Gilbert makes startlingly clear, how our assumptions about music can sometimes get in the way of understanding music as it is, or as it was. If there is anything the Holocaust can teach us about music, it is that our cosy assumptions about it are built on fantasies that most of us, thank goodness, have never had to test. As I hope we will find out during these podcasts, the study of the Holocaust is as much a study of what we might term rather grandly humanity as it is of war or of politics. This is humanity both at its most remarkable and at its most brutal. The study of the Holocaust, in short, is the study of ourselves, the limits of our own moral and political responsibility, our own implications in racism, hatred, violence and their consequences, and of course our resistance to them. So, to answer the question raised at the start of this podcast, we have to think about a huge range of musical practices undertaken during the Holocaust. Some of these practices teach us that music is susceptible to the moral codes of the Nazi regime, whilst others teach us that music as a form of cultural practice enabled some victims at least to hold on to a small part of their humanity, resisting the animalization that the ghettos and camps enacted upon them. In short then, it is this idea of the victims of the Holocaust as cultural beings that we shall be exploring in future episodes. Please join me next week for another episode of Sound and Memory. <laughs>